Well, many of you know, some of you don't, that I was born and raised for part of my life in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And we moved out here to southwest Minnesota uh, when I was uh, seven years old to a tiny town in the southwest corner of the state. And oftentimes, we would go back uh, to Pennsylvania for vacation. And many times when we did that, we would go and visit my grandparents in Lansdale, Chalfon area, which is not quite a suburb of Philadelphia, but it's close enough that it can be considered one. But we would go back there and visit them and stay at their house, and oftentimes, Pop-Pop and Grandma Lane, as we called them, would take us to the R&S Diner in Telford, Pennsylvania. Uh, Telford, Pennsylvania is kind of the, it's, it's one of the smaller towns right next to Sallerton. It's on uh, one of the major highways that runs, uh, runs past there and goes down to Philly. And it's R&S Diner, very famous, uh, great place to eat. And one of the times that we went there, uh, we went down and, and, and we're seated and everything, we're having our meal, and, and I remember distinctly just seeing there, we were waiting to finish up, I don't know if we were waiting for dessert or just waiting to get the check, that the waitress who had been serving us, she had to be 16 or 17, was going on her way back, to, she's taking our dishes back, and, and she came back and she said to my mom and dad, she said, I know what I need to say this, you have four very well-behaved children. Uh, and it was kind of a, an abrupt statement. I had not considered that, neither had my folks. And of course, my, my pop, my grandpa, had to say, oh, you've got to be kidding me. They are the rottenest kids in the world, and, and you're just out of your mind. But uh, she felt it necessary to compliment us on our good behavior while eating. Well, behavior can carry both a positive and a negative to it, can it? Some people can look at us and say, well, your behavior is not right. We need to correct something. Or you, could, you have gotten those times perhaps in the past as when you were a kid and, and even a teenager, your, your positive behavior was praised. Hey, thank you for, thank you for picking up your clothes and, and cleaning where you needed to. And, and so that's, that's a good thing that was praised uh, or developed in you. Well, here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32, we have Paul laying out some behavior that he wants us to cultivate in our lives as we live the new life in Christ. And so my challenge to you this morning as we think about uh, this passage of Scripture is that we need to behave like the new man in our relationships. We need to behave like the new man in our relationships. And you say, Pastor, well, well how do I do that? How do I behave like the new man that I am in Christ? How do I do that in my relationships? Well, I have five behaviors that we need to undertake in our lives that will help us do that. Number one, we always speak the truth. We always speak the truth. Therefore, Paul loves using the word therefore, doesn't he? He links it back to what he's talked about. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor for your members of one another. This is all the result of putting on the new man. Okay, therefore, this, so as we talked about last week, what is the new man? It's no longer walking like the Gentiles walk. It's doing things differently. You've put, him, put, him, put off the old man. You've put on the new man. You're being renewed. Okay, so all that, those newness in Christ. Now, okay, now live that out. Work on that. Be involved in that. You're putting on the new man. And because of the new man the new person we are in Christ, we now have obligations to perform. It's like getting a job promotion at work. 
I don't know if you've ever gotten one of those. It, it's a good thing when it comes along because normally it increases your pay and, and you get, uh, get some acclimation that comes with it. But guess what? There's also responsibilities, aren't there? Things you need to do as a result of this new promotion. Well, think of your new promotion as a new man in Christ as you've got some responsibilities to work on. That includes speaking the truth. You see, being the new man in Christ has resulted in terminating lying. It says, therefore, putting away lying. The idea of putting away here means to get rid of, put off. And the way it's translated here, if you're using a King James or perhaps another translation, it says putting away. It seems that it's talking about doing it now. But the construction in the original language shows that this is past action. So another way to say this, I think a better way to say this, is having put away. So past action. So there was a time where we were telling lies, and that was our standard. But now that activity has been put away because of being the new man in Christ. It has been put off. We were expected at one time before Christ to, to always be lying with our speech, be using our speech to, to convey our own interests and put ourselves to the forefront, but now that's been put off and, and the standard of righteousness and truth-telling has replaced it. And that leads me to ask, so why go back to it? If we've put away lying, why would we want to go back to that standard? Why would we want to do that? when we now can have the ability to speak the truth. Now we have the ability to, to speak the truth with our fellow believers. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. This is a quote, that phrase, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, is a quote from Zechariah 8.16, where Zechariah writes, these are the things you shall do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. This is now the standard. The content of our speech, the content of our communication is speaking truth to one another and to the world. That's the word neighbor. means one who is close by. One who is, is near to you. can be translated fellow human being. And in context here, remember, remember our, 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 our lesson in, in Bible study methods, context is king. So in context here, Paul is talking about our relationship to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. But we can also include everyone in this statement. No matter the relationship, we are to speak truth to whoever crosses our path. To whoever crosses our path. And the reason that Paul gives in verse 25 is that we are members, we make up the body of Christ. We have accepted the truth. We have believed the truth. Now we're to speak the truth to one another as we have been put together in the body of Christ. It should be normal for us as believers, as the body of Christ, to speak the truth to one another. We, we saw this. Jump back to verse 15 of chapter 4. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ. This is our standard now. We're supposed to do. We're supposed to speak the truth to one another, both as a body of Christ and in the world today. And so that leads me to ask this question this morning. Do you speak the truth even when it hurts? Because let's be honest with ourselves. Truth is not always easy to say, is it? 
Consider the example of Paul in Acts chapter 2, verse 11, where he says this, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. And the resulting verses show that Peter had a problem. When Gentiles were around and no Jews were around, Paul, Peter would engage in conversation with Gentiles, but as soon as any people of Jewish nature came along, Paul withdrew himself and associated with them and not the Gentile believers. And, and Paul confronted him and told him that he was wrong. And even though it may be hard for us to speak the truth, it is still necessary, even if it is to point out wrong in others. And so are you willing to speak the truth with, with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, even if it means you talk about something hard? Because we're supposed to speak the truth, and the truth includes all things. The easy things and the hard things. So when your brother or sister comes to you and say, hey, I noticed you doing this thing, and this, I don't think you should be doing that according to God's Word. It, it doesn't look good, and it's not what Jesus wants you to do. That's speaking the truth. And when you hear it, a sub, sub point of application here, when you hear the truth, you respond appropriately. You say, you know what? Oh, yeah, you're right. I, I need to change that. For, please forgive me. That's something I need to work on. But speaking the truth, a behavior we're supposed to engage in, it's easy to lie, isn't it? Let's put it out there, right? It's easy to just gloss over things and not make things as bad as they are because you don't want to hurt people's feelings. So lying might be the easy way to go, but we've put that off. We're not supposed to be lying. We're supposed to tell the truth even when it's hard. That's how we live like the new man. The new person we are in Christ. Are you doing that? Second behavior that Paul wants us to cultivate as we handle our anger and do not let it handle us be angry and do not sin now notice with me here anger is not the problem right paul doesn't say don't be angry he says when you get angry don't sin be angry. It's a command. Both these words are commands here. Be angry, don't sin. This word anger is, is this common word describes God's anger or human anger in the Bible. And it leads us to, to conclude that anger itself is not inherently evil. It is not wrong to be angry. We can draw upon the, the illustration of Christ in, in the Gospels when he went into the temple on two separate occasions and saw business being transacted in a place of worship. He got angry, and rightfully so. There was sin, there was wrong going on in the temple, and so he reacted appropriately. And we can be angry for the right reasons, too. That's okay. What is the problem is sinful anger. When you and I go off on someone or something because it just so ticks us off that we have to react. And we react in sin rather than in control. The word do not sin is in constructed to show that it can be possible to not sin when you are angry. 
And so what Paul is saying here is that the believer who is angry needs to be careful that his anger does not lead him to sin. And Paul uses a quote, another Old Testament quote here, in Psalm 4.4, where the psalmist says, Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still, Selah. To be sinful in one's anger can take many forms, can it? Whether it be physical violence, someone gets really angry and they lash out, they throw punches, they pull out a gun, can reveal itself in hurtful words, degrading speech, or even to the worst point, taking someone's life. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let anger control you so that your actions create more harm. If that does happen, if if you are engaged in sinful anger, sinful anger needs to be dealt with quickly. Notice he says there, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. The word go down here refers to just the sinking of something. And the emphasis is on the end of the day. So, the setting of the sun, as the sun is going down, as the day is ending, you need to deal with your anger. It's really interesting that the word here for wrath means to be intensely provoked or irritated. It carries with it the idea of, of festered anger. I don't know if you know what, it, being, being I, I call it stewing. You ever stewed? Something's ticked you off so bad that you're just meditating on it. It's just working over in your mind over and over again. I'm so mad at it. It's festering. It's stewing in you. You're ticked off. And perhaps you've reacted. Perhaps you've let go and you've hurt somebody. Well, you need to deal with it. If you continue to let it irritate you and let it just tick you off and just ruin your mood, it's going to ruin far more than your mood. It might even ruin a relationship. It might even cause hurt to yourself. So when the believer exercises himself in anger, he needs to address it before the day ends and the next one begins. So as the sun is going, if it's 2 a.m. and you're still ticked off, that means you get up and you deal with it. You make that phone call, phone call. You talk to your wife, even though she might be upset at you for waking her up. You talk to that person. You deal with that anger. You address it. Because it needs to be addressed. Otherwise, if it's not addressed, the devil gains a foothold in your life. And that's what he's always seeking to do, isn't he? First Peter 5.8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Satan's always looking to gain a foothold in your life. He can't have your soul, but he'll do something else to get in your life and ruin it. So Paul says, don't give Satan an opportunity. That's the idea of the word place. Favorable circumstance. The devil still wants a foothold, so he's seeking that opportunity for you to lose your anger and react sinfully so he can cause you to lose your effectiveness for Christ. When you lost it with a coworker, your kids, perhaps your spouse, 
Let me ask you this question. How long was it before that relationship was restored? And how long of a period did it last? And how long did you lose on, on potential positive impact on that person? That's a devil gaining a foothold. That's a devil letting anger, that's you letting anger in and the devil using that to ruin your mood and therefore ruin your relationships and ruin your effectiveness for the Lord. So that leads me to ask this question this morning. When you are angry, again, anger is not wrong. We need to deal with it. But when you are angry, are you controlling it or letting it control you? That's the two options we have, isn't it? When I'm angry and I'm upset, am I letting it control me or am I controlling it? Am I dealing with it? If I'm mad at my wife or my son because they've, quite frankly, it's me. You know, I'm letting minor stuff irritate me and it doesn't need to happen. And I'm letting it get to me and therefore I'm reacting wrongly. Am I dealing with it or am I letting it deal with me? And for some of us this morning, perhaps we've let our anger control us for so long that we've forgotten why we're angry. And perhaps something like this is brought up and, and, and you're thinking in your mind, and, oh man, I need to deal with that. I need to talk to that person. It may have been years since the event, but you need to deal with it. You may not have dealt with it when the sun went down on that day, but guess what? So many years later, so many weeks later, it's still occurring in your heart and mind. You're still struggling with it. Call them. Write them a letter if necessary. Deal with your anger because it's controlling you and you are losing your effectiveness for the Lord. Are you controlling your anger or are you letting it control you? Third behavior that Paul lists for us this morning is that we purposely work hard Verse 28, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Now in context, Paul here is talking about those who stole to selfishly satisfy themselves are encouraged to do differently. That's the idea of the phrase, him who stole. That's the thief if you will, the person who was used to stealing to, to meet his needs and to meet his desires. So at that time, there were thieves coming to Christ who knew nothing but stealing. Now what, now what are they supposed to do? They, they've been made a new man in Christ and they're not supposed to be stealing anymore because that's what not pleasing to God. That's not what He would want them to do. So now what do they do? They're supposed to work. Supposed to engage in labor. That's the idea of the word. The word labor means to exert oneself physically, mentally, or spiritually. And here, context wise, at that time, it was all physical manual labor. There was no sitting down at a computer desk and typing on keys. There was no writing down of paper and, and filing things. It was manual labor. It was lifting things. It was pushing things. Physical involvement. They had to be working at this, laboring at this. The word working means to engage in that activity. And here the, the activity is working with one's own hands. So he's supposed, the former thief is supposed to use his hands to work rather than using them to steal. He's supposed to work that which is good or he's supposed to do good labor, honest work. And what's the purpose of that? The purpose of the honest work is to meet the needs of others. 
that he may have something to give him who has need. Now, Paul is not saying here, here that the end result of work is to just give everybody everything you have. Anybody who has a need, you come and meet it. No, he, he, he's emphasizing that when the opportunity arises to meet a need, the former thief who used to steal for his own benefit now has something to give to someone who has a need. The word need here has the idea of to, to, to lack something that is necessary. And he's supposed to give it to him. So as the former thief encounters people, he is to use his earnings to share when the opportunity arises and not steal from that person who is in need. And here we have the contrast, don't we, of humility and pride. Pride thinks of self, stealing, taking for yourself. Humility thinks of others, that he may have something to give to him who has a need. James chapter 4, verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is what it boils down to. And again, he's talking to people who have stolen in the past. And for us, maybe we haven't stolen anything and not been our lifestyle, but we're still supposed to work hard so that we have opportunity. As opportunity arises, we have an opportunity to meet a need. And so that leads me to ask this question this morning. Do you view your compensation as a means to bless or an opportunity to consume? This is, this is a struggle I have. You, know, you get your finances, and, and I automatically think of myself. What can I buy? What can I get for myself to spend on myself? I've worked hard for it. I've earned it. What can I use it for myself? And Paul says that is not the attitude that is to dominate the new man in Christ. He is to think of others. Okay, when an opportunity comes along, how can I meet that need? It doesn't have to be something big. Some of you are thinking, well, that means I've got to get 500 bucks to the person who comes along at, at the corner who needs money, or I need to spend all this time and energy helping out meet this need. It can be something so small as providing a meal for someone. Taking those resources that you have bought with your hard-earned compensation and using them to encourage someone else. I can't tell you how many times this past few weeks, a month and a half since having Noah, that someone has offered to bring a meal. And that's been encouragement to us. It shows a sacrificial love that we all need to have, that people have engaged in and providing for us during a, a, a time of transition. And we've had opportunity. Uh, I know recently there's been some people who have needed meals in the church and then outside the church. We've, we've, we've provided that. We've done something along those lines. And that comes from a mindset that seeks to bless rather than to consume. So I ask you this morning, as, as a new man in Christ, are you acting this way? Are you behaving this way? Fourth behavior that Paul lists for us this morning is that we encourage with our words while taking them seriously. Verse 29, look with me. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. The disgusting dialogue of the old man is to be absent from the believer's mouth. The word corrupt here means bad or unwholesome to the extent of being harmful. It was used in the ancient literature at that time to describe rancid fish, rotten wood, or withered flowers. Not entirely healthy descriptions. 
I remember, I'm going to use an illustration of an illustration to illustrate this, so stay with me here, okay? Uh, I, 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 I taught junior church in, at Heritage Baptist Church in Flemington, New Jersey for f- several years when I was down there, and Ephesians 4.32, or 4.29-32 was my passage for one Sunday, and I was still working at McDonald's at that time. I was a, a co-manager and used to work various shifts, and I think the Saturday before I taught that lesson, uh, I was... I think it was up done about 7 or 8 o'clock, and they were throwing some old meat away in the trash, some of the old quarter pounders. That's what happens. It, it just McDonald's insight. It, McDonald's is only supposed to have their meat sitting out for so long a time, and then they throw it away. Okay? So what I, what I did was, as they were throwing some of the old meat away, I grabbed some of it out of the trash and said, I'm going to use this for my illustration tomorrow. And so what I did, I put it in a bag, and then I put some dirt in a bag, kind of rubbed it together, and just kind of let it sit overnight. And, and the next day, I took it with me. And, you know, we had the morning service, and then pastor got up to preach, and then I took the kids upstairs in our old building, in the old building for, for our junior church time. And then I got to the lesson, and then we talked about, okay, what does it mean to have corrupt, in the King James' corrupt communication, corrupt words? And so I pulled out this bag that had old, dirty meat in it that was rotting. I said, hey, how about you, anybody want a snack? And all of a sudden, the kids go, oh, no, Mr. Fish, what are you doing? I said, no, no, look, there's some protein here. There's some good stuff here. You want some? And they're like, oh, no, Mr. Fish, let's take that away. And I said it to them, I'll say it to you now, that's just an illustration of what comes out of our mouth when we engage in dialogue that is associated with the old man. It's disgusting. It's of no benefit. It's to the point of being harmful. And notice Paul says, all here. He uses the word no, but it's the word all as well. So let no or all corrupt words be put out from your mouth. Don't let them come out. It's interesting that the word for proceed, the grammatical construction, puts the responsibility on the speaker. So we are responsible for what we say. And that, asks, that leads me to ask this question, do you and I own what we say? When we speak that wrong word, that corrupt word, are we willing to own it? Yeah, you know what? Ugh, shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. That was the wrong word to say. Would you forgive me? Again, that has the point of, of truth-telling, doesn't it? Owning it. Telling the truth. But do you and I own what we say? Or are we quick to excuse it as like, ugh, don't worry about it. It's okay. Let no corrupt communication, let no corrupt words, let no disgusting dialogue come out. It is our responsibility to watch what we say as new people in Christ. And yet our our speech is to be encouraging. It says, but what is good for necessary edification, the word good here has the idea of, of meeting a high standard of worth and merit. The word here is singular and emphasizes every word that is spoken. The word, our words are to be accounted for. When we say something good, we're supposed to account for it. When we say something wrong and corrupt, we're supposed to account for that. Every word we say, we're supposed to keep track of. Am I being encouraging or am I being discouraging and degrading? Because I'm supposed to be encouraging, building up, 
necessary edification. I need to be talking someone up, not talking someone down. Which, I, uh, which ironically, which is easier? Talking someone down is a lot easier than talking someone up. But we need to be doing that. Encouraging, building up to the point that our encouraging speech ministers grace to the ones who are in the conversation. The word may in part here is constructed so that this is the desired outcome, although at times it does not happen. But the end goal for us should be always to impart grace, to be gracious in our speech, even when the person doesn't deserve it. Isn't that the definition of grace? Being gracious is receiving or giving grace to the recipients who don't deserve it. So we are to speak encouragingly, and as we speak encouragingly, we impart grace to those who listen to us. And it comes with a warning here as well that our speech can upset God Himself. Verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. Now some have taken this and say this is, refers to all sin. And that is true. All sin does grieve the Spirit. But in context here, remember context is king. We're talking about our words. And so our speech, the way we talk, can grieve God. And we need to take it seriously. The word grieve, he, grieve here means to be sad or in distress. We can distress God with our disgusting words. We think it's just the person that, that we're talking to that we're hurting or degrading, but guess what? We're also hurting God. You see how serious this is? We don't, th- we don't take too much thought about our words, but God does. God, God cares about how we talk and what we say. And if He cares about what we say and do, we need to take it seriously. To the point that Paul says, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We, we noticed this all the way back in chapter 1, verse 13, in whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Paul is, Paul is reminding the believers, he reminds us that the Holy Spirit is with us and will continue to be with us as we look forward to that day of eternal redemption where we are forever free from our sin. And Paul is using this phrase to remind us of who lives in us. The Holy Spirit is always there. And if I can grieve Him by my corrupting, disgusting speech, that should be sufficient warning enough. God is in me through His Spirit I better watch what I say. And that leads me to ask this question this morning. Do you carefully choose your words so that grace, not detriment, is received? It's a challenge, isn't it? I don't know about you. I don't think through my words too often. and Man, what comes out isn't always that pleasant. But I need to get in that mindset of carefully thinking about what I'm saying so that the end goal is that I minister grace, not detriment. We say, Pastor, you know, 
that person ticked me off so much and I got to really give it to them to let them know how mad I am. Well, what's that going to accomplish? Nothing. Absolutely not a thing. Because you're not ministering grace, you're ministering detriment. And our words, because God lives in us and we can grieve him with our words, warning enough, it should cause us to realize that I better choose my words carefully, even when I am upset. So rather than hauling off and letting that person have it with my words, I should carefully choose them and say, hey, you know what you did back there? I really didn't appreciate it. Yeah, consider how my, and you give your perspective, and you can do that in a graceful manner. Rather than saying, why are you dirty little, that doesn't help. That's not ministering grace. <coughs> Excuse me. So you choose your words carefully. And then finally, some of you are saying, Pastor, that's enough. <laughs> that's, we've got one more. Last behavior that Paul wants us to engage is in is that we are loving in our identity. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. What is Paul saying here? He says the marks of the old life are to be removed. All these different attitudes and actions, we'll, we'll go through them here. They still affect us, don't they? Perhaps you can look at this list and identify even this past week where perhaps you were angry or bitter or loud, argumentative. We're still affected by these. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 8, but now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Still a constant battle. What are these words that he lists there? Bitterness means to be in the state of being bitter. The idea here is resentment. Someone's made you upset and excuse me, done something that you resent. So you build up resentment to them. You're bitter to them. I've, I've seen people like that and believing those people are no fun to be around. I remember one lady in, in France when I, I lived over there, my junior year of college, toward the end there I was working in a Bible camp before I came back to the States. This lady, a believer in the church that was meeting there at the camp. And because it was an American, she came up and I understood what she said. She came up and just kind of let forth her bitterness on me because her son married an American woman and was living in, the, in Colorado and she didn't like that. So she was bitter against him and her bitterness came out towards me as an American. And believe me, her demeanor was bitter. Wrath. Here it means to be the state of intense displeasure. This is momentary anger that is aroused by passion. So the idea here is, is something's happened and this quick fire of passion has arisen and, and anger, wrath comes out. The momentary anger. The next word, anger, means to be in a state of relatively strong displeasure with the focus being on the emotional aspect. So the idea here is the state of being continually angry. So momentary anger and continual anger, those are supposed to be discarded. Clamor means loud cry, call, or shout. Here the emphasis 
is screaming or shouting in a bad way. It's the, it's the idea of shouting out in an argument with someone. You know, you, you've probably heard of them before. Maybe you've engaged them yourself where the argument got so intense you started shouting one another and screaming because you're trying to get your words in and ultimately what was happening is more loud noise than anything else. Loud quarreling. The word evil speaking means speech that degrades or defames. Slander, reviling, are another way of, of, of using, describing this term. And the word malice, quality of state or wickedness. And the, and the idea of with all malice is that all, this word is used to describe all these other characteristics that are wicked. They are malice and therefore to be removed from our lives. And the contrary here as we finish up is that we are to be kind. How many times did we hear this one as kids? Be kind one to another, right? The word be kind here means to be good or benevolent. No longer are we to be mean and coarse in our interactions. Now we care. Even though that person doesn't deserve it. We're still supposed to be kind to them. We're all supposed to be compassionate, tender-hearted. That's where tender-hearted means to do deep affections, deep feelings for someone. We're no longer selfish. We're now compassionate towards our fellow man, seeking to show love to them in various ways. We are also graciously forgiving. Forgiving one another even as God and Christ forgave you. The word forgiving here means to show oneself gracious by forgiving wrongdoing. Now, the variety of commentators looking at this word go back and forth. Does it mean forgiving and forgiving sin? Does it mean being gracious? According to the context, gracious with our words. Does it mean grace and forgiveness? I mean grace or forgiveness? I think both words are in play here. So it means being gracious in our speech to the point of when we need to forgive sin, we graciously forgive it. And Paul reminds us at the end of verse 32 of how gracious God was in forgiving us even as God in Christ forgave you. And what literally Paul is saying here, if God was so gracious in forgiving us the eternal weight of our sin, why cannot we be just as gracious in forgiving the minor irritations that others cause us? Our sin grieves and is against God and is eternal sin. Something has gone for a lifetime and God has forgiven us of that, why cannot we forgive the momentary irritations of others? That is far less of an issue than our sin before God. And if God forgave us that much, cannot we forgive that little? That leads me to ask this question this morning. Are you identifying with the old man or the new are you living like the old man who, who is corrupt in his speech, is filthy in his communication, who is bitter in his character, who fights and argues all day long 
and is wicked in every way? Or are you the new man who is kind, gracious, compassionate? So look at the mirror this morning as we looked at these verses. Which one do you identify with this morning? You can tell what a person is like by how they behave, right? You can go out today after we're done. Some of you I met heard going to Hardee's after the service for, for lunch. And just, just take a look. You can see what kind of behavior those people are carrying themselves. And that's how you can tell what they're like. The same is true for us as believers. If we're going to live like the new man that we've become in Christ, we need to practice these new behaviors. What are they? We speak the truth always. We handle our anger. Do not let it handle us. We purposely work hard. We don't steal. We don't selfishly use our resources for purposes that are otherwise less than blessing. We encourage with our words and take them seriously at the same time. And we, we are loving in our identity. That's how we behave like the new man. So as we go into a new week, may I challenge all of us, let us all behave like the new person we are in Christ. Christ.